You see our copy of God's Word, our passage this morning, Psalm 115, is there in your bulletin. And once again, if you're visiting with us, so glad to have you. If you're tuning in via live stream, it's a pleasure to have you with us in worship this morning. In 2005, David Foster Wallace gave what came to be um, one of the most well-known and famous uh, commencement speeches uh, in recent memory at Kenyon College. And David Foster Wallace, if you're familiar with him, he's not coming from a Christian worldview. He's not necessarily speaking with a, with a theological agenda, but he does put his finger on something um, incredibly profound, incredibly profound, which is why I think what he says has become so widely known. It's a long quote, but, but hang, hang with me. It's so good. He says this, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice that we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, whether it's Jesus Christ or Allah or the Wiccan mother goddess or some set of ethical principles, is that pretty much everything else that you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if that's where you tap in real life, then you will never have enough. He says it's the truth. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you're always going to feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power and you will always feel weak and afraid. And you'll always need more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll always end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about this form of worship, he says, is that it's not that it's evil or sinful, it's that it's automatic, it's unconscious. He says these are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. That's really good. He says that worship is inevitable, that it's a, it's a default setting uh, that we just show up into this world with. It's, it's how we're wired. Now, we, we would say, obviously, that's how we're made in God's image. That's part of our purpose. Um, but even someone like David Foster Wallace recognizes that that's how our hearts function and operate, that we just automatically recognize and chase after something ultimately beautiful and valuable. We're going to give our lives to something. We're going to live in light of something and chase after something that we love the most. And like Wallace says, everybody worships. The only choice that you get is what to worship. (laughs) And that means, like we said already, that worship for us this morning did not start at 10 o'clock. It didn't start when when you walked into church this morning. Worship started for you before you got out of bed. You actually didn't start worshiping this morning because you never stopped worshiping. (laughs) Because it's so ingrained in who you are and what it means to be human. That means that it's probably true that you can look back at last week, at the highs and lows of last week, and you you can explain those highs and lows maybe in terms of what you were worshiping, of what was truly valuable, what you were ultimately loving in those moments. It means that even this morning right now, that what is gripping your heart, that what you're afraid of or not afraid of, or what's making you confident or anxious, could be explained in terms of worship, in terms of what you're chasing after and truly wanting 
and loving. Our psalm this morning, Psalm 115, is about worship. And it's written with the assumption that everybody worships. The only choice that you get is what to worship. That's, and that's, that's the main message of our psalm. Our, the, the psalm, as we read it this morning, it's, it's 18 verses, but it really could have just been one verse. The psalmist could have just written a one-verse psalm that said, don't worship false gods, worship the true God. That's really what it could have been. That's the main message. But because that's no fun, and because the psalmist has more to say than that, he gives us 18 verses of why the one true God is so infinitely better than any other God substitute. Why the, why the one true God is so infinitely more true and good and beautiful than anything else that our hearts could chase after this morning. So what does he have to say? Let's read and find out. Psalm 115. This is God's word. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he Human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. O oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O Israel, or or, O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down in silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you, um, even better than us, know our hearts this morning. You can see where we are distracted. You can see where we are burdened, where we are anxious, fearful. You know what is truly good and true and beautiful to us this morning. And so we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would come and make yourself more true and more good and more beautiful to the eyes of our hearts as we see what you reveal to yourself or what you reveal to us about yourself here in this portion of the gospel. And we pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. So the assumption behind Psalm 115 is what David Foster Wallace says, that you're going to worship something. The only choice is what you worship. Worship is inevitable. Um, But before we dive in, before we see what Psalm 115 says about this, I want to address some of you that might be thinking at this point, you know, this is just the kind of sermon that I needed this morning because I'm tired, I'm distracted, I've got a busy week coming up, and God knows that I just needed some space to just doodle and think about something else and let my mind wander. 
Because I've got 99 problems, but worshiping an idol, worshiping a statue is not one of them. Like God knows that I've got issues, but if this is going to be a sermon about why worshiping an idol, a statue, something that's gold or silver, it, why that's bad, you might be thinking, okay, good, check. I don't have a problem with that. That's not really an issue for me. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to check out. I don't have a problem with false worship. But not so fast. Not so fast, because idolatry, false worship, is so much more subtle than you might be thinking. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, puts it this way. A counterfeit God, a false God, is, is anything that's so central and essential to your life that if you were to lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. An idol it has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it, without even a second thought. It could be family or children. It could be a career, making money, achievement, a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and success, comfortable circumstances, all very good things. But an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll know that my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I'm significant and secure. And Keller says there's lots of different ways to describe that kind of relationship, but the best way is worship. Worship. So that means that you're, that you're not off the hook. <laughs> it means that we're all here with hearts that are prone to wonder and prone to go after something else that we truly love. Because remember, everybody worships. The only choice that we get is what to worship. And so with that in mind, I want us to see what the psalmist says here about why the living and true God is so much infinitely better than any other God substitute. Because remember, the assumption is we're going to worship something, and the psalmist wants to give us four categories to think in, four, four realities to think through, four areas in which the, tr the one true and living God is so much infinitely better in a category of his own than any of the other good things that we can turn into ultimate things and put in his place. So what are they? Well, here they are. The first one is location. The psalmist says, when it comes to worship and when it comes to choosing what you're going to worship, you need to think about location. You might be familiar with what people say about, um, about real estate, the three most important things in real estate. You know what they are? Location, 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 right? Well, the psalmist says something similar to that here. He says, when it comes to worship, location is critical. Verse 2, why should the nations say, where is their God? Verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The psalmist here, he's saying that the unbelieving world around us, the unbelieving world around Israel at that time and around us in the current time, the, the unbelieving world around us is always asking this question, where is this God that you keep talking about? This God that you say reveals himself in Scripture, this God that you say is all-loving and powerful, where is this God that you're talking about in light of all of the evidence to the contrary, both in the world and in your own life? Where is your God? Where is, you, where is God on 9-11? Where is God as the world is falling apart during pandemic right now? Where is God when you lost your job? Where was God when... 
when that one part of your story fell apart a few years ago and you still have so many unanswered questions. Where is your God? And the psalmist says, when that question comes at you, not if, not if, but when it comes at you, and it's going to come at you from outside and from within, from our own hearts, he says, you need to remember location. Verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Verse 15, may you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. Verse 16, the heavens are the Lord's heavens. You see how he keeps hammering on this theme that God is in heaven and that he made heaven. He's saying this. He's saying, look, if your God is small enough to just look out and see whenever you want to, if your God is small enough that you can locate him whenever and wherever you want to, if your God is on the same level as you, if he's on the same playing field as everything else in this physical universe, then your God is way too small to handle all of the crushing questions that you have for him. Way too small. If your God is the kind of God that you can locate in this physical universe, that you can look out and see and feel and touch, then he's way too small to handle your suffering, to handle your pain, to handle your life. He's not big enough to pray to. He's not big enough to handle your shame and your questions. But he's saying, but, but the one true and living God, the psalmist says, is not part of the world that he made. He's like the author, and this world is like the story. He's outside of it and above it. He says, our God is in the heavens. That's his location. And then he says, and here's what that means for you. It means that he's not under your control. It means that you can't manipulate him and that he's not on your leash and that he doesn't answer to you. When you say jump, our God does not say how high. <laughs> he's saying, here's what it means. Because he's in heaven, our God can do anything that he pleases. Whatever he wants. He doesn't answer to anything or anyone outside of himself. He does anything that he pleases. Now, if we think about it too much, well, if we think about it all, verse 3 should make us uneasy. If we only had, if this is all that we knew about God, is verse 3. It should make us uneasy because it's telling us that he is this unlimited. He is this above and outside of the world and outside of our control. But verse 3 is not telling us anything about his character. It's not telling us anything about what he's like. Because what if he's vindictive? What if, he's, what if it pleases him to make people sad? What if it makes God happy to pull the rug out from under his people? And what if it pleases him to watch the world spiral out of control? <laughs> you realize in the, in the setting in which Psalm, 15, Psalm 115 was written, back in that context, um, in the ancient Near East, that was every other pagan deity. Every, every god that the nations around Israel worshipped were just like that. That's how they operated. They were capricious and selfish and power-hungry. They craved sex and, and food, and, and they needed other people to give them food. They were incredibly needy, uh, and they fought with each other. They had bad tempers, and they held grudges. That was, that was what the pagan deities were like. And so you realize they were just big people. They were just extensions and projections of the people that were worshiping 
that we're worshiping them. And the psalmist is saying God is not at all like that. It's easy to imagine a God that looks like you, isn't it? But the psalmist is saying the God, the, the one true and living God, the God who has revealed himself in Scripture, he's not like anything that you could imagine or make up. Because he's in the heavens, he's outside and above, and what pleases him? Verse 1, steadfast love and faithfulness. It pleases him to commit himself unconditionally to sinful people like us. That's what pleases him. It pleases him, verses 9, 10, and 11, to be their help and their shield. It pleases God to bless the socks off of his people. Like we see in six different times, it's mentioned in verses 12 uh, through 18, this, this idea of God blessing his people. That's what God's like. That's, if we could say it this way, that's how the heart of God is wired towards his people, to bless because of where he is. So the psalmist says, think about, think about location when it comes to who you're going to worship. He says, our God is in the heavens. He's big enough to handle everything that you can throw at him, all of your questions, all the chapters of your story that don't make sense. He's big enough to trust completely. And because he's that big, he does all that he pleases. And what he pleases is what is best for you. He has attached what, please, what is best for you to what makes him the happiest. His glory. That's what God is like. Why wouldn't you worship a God like that? The psalmist is saying. Think about location. He's saying, is, is what you worship located in the heavens, doing whatever they please, and most interested in what is best for you? Can you say that about your God? <laughs> so he says, first of all, you need to think about location when it comes to worship. Secondly, you need to think about formation. You need to think about formation. And here we focus on verses 4 through 8 where the psalmist turns the question that's in verse 2 back on the people that are asking it. And he said, okay, I've answered your, your question our God is in the heavens. That's where he is. And then he's like, all right, where is your God? And then you hear him say, oh, here he is. Verse 4, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. It's like you can see the psalmist here walking up to the shelf or to the mantle, and he picks up this, this little figurine or statue, and he's like, wait a minute. This is your God? This is what you're trusting in this is what you need he's like it looks like a looks like something from sophomore art class and and part of the ear is chopped off because you got in a hurry as you were making it it was the work of your hands and it's made out of what my wedding ring is made out of this is your god he says <laughs> you see the psalmist here he's, he's making fun of both the idol and the idol worshiper he's he's engaging in ridicule and we see this kind of thing all over the old testament isaiah 44 for instance. But I want you to see that, that the psalmist is not merely making fun of the idol and the idol worshiper. He's, he engages in something incredibly profound here. The psalmist, starting in verse 5, he takes us on this tour of idol anatomy. <laughs> he says, they have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes, but don't see. Ears, but they don't hear. And on and on and on and on and on. He, he goes from the hands to the nose to the feet to the throat. He wants us to see all the features of this idol, because here's what he's doing. Get ready. <laughs> this is kind of gross, but do you know what he's describing? He's not just describing a statue. 
something that's just made out of gold. I mean, like, if this was a riddle and I said, what else in your, what else can you think of that has eyes but doesn't see and ears that don't hear and, and hands that doesn't feel? You know what he's describing? He's describing a dead person. He's describing a corpse. He's describing what you would see if you went to a funeral home and opened up a casket at a funeral. That's what he's describing. <laughs> and he's saying, here's the point. You become like what you worship. You begin to resemble what you revere. You are formed into the image of what you love the most. And when you love dead and lifeless things, you become dead and lifeless yourself. He's saying that what, what you worship forms you and shapes you. It changes you. You become like what you worship. Just like water takes the shape of its container. When you pour water into a container, it doesn't say, now I think I want to be a different shape. It just takes the shape of what it's poured into. And the psalmist here is, is expressing something that we see all throughout Scripture. That our hearts really are that impressionable, <laughs> that malleable, that we take the shape of what we love the most. And you know it was meant to be that way. God designed worship to operate and function this way. He, he made Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, like our catechism says, in perfect righteousness and holiness, but they weren't finished products by any stretch of the imagination. If they had obeyed, they would have had thousands and thousands of mil and millions of years to become more like the object of their worship, to grow in their righteousness and their holiness, and to, be, and to keep changing into the image of, their, of, of the object of their worship. That's how it's, it's supposed to work. But, but we see here that sin has hijacked that process so that now that the reverse is true, that when we give our hearts to lesser things, we become lesser ourselves. When we love things that are lifeless and empty, we become lifeless and empty ourselves. Every counterfeit God, every idol, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, when it turns into something ultimate, if it's not the one true and living God, it is, by definition, lifeless and empty. And here's the thing. It will shape you into its image, and you will become lifeless and empty too. Now, you might be thinking at this point, all right, wait a minute. So what you're saying is, if I ultimately love and I worship um, wealth and success, then you're saying I'm going to become wealthy and successful? Because it sounds like a pretty good deal to me. I might give that a shot. You're saying that I, if I worship beauty, I'm going to become beautiful? <laughs> or if I, if, if I really need more than anything else in the world comfort and security, then I'm going to become comfor comfortable and secure? <laughs> I might give that a shot. Well, now here's the thing. The psalmist would say, maybe. You just might. But it will crush you. It will crush you and it will crush the people around you. Like David Foster Wallace says, it will eat you alive. <laughs> because to paraphrase another writer, when we worship something, we begin to reflect that thing back out to the people around us and to the world around us. When we worship money, we increasingly define ourselves and the people around us only in terms of money. So that we don't see God's images anymore. We only see things 
that are creditors or debtors or partners or customers. When we, when we worship sex, when we increasingly define ourselves and understand ourselves and other people in terms of sex, we increasingly dehumanize the people around us, either ignoring them if they're not attractive enough or objectifying them if they are. You see how that works? When we worship power, we increasingly define ourselves only in terms of power and other people in, in terms of power, so that we don't see real human beings made in the image of God. We just see somebodies or nobodies. Only people to climb up the only people that are above the ladder or people that we can step on on our way up the ladder. And we could go on and on and on. Worship is formative. It changes us. It changes us and it changes the way that we reflect what we worship back out to the people around us. And listen, because we're always worshiping, it means that this is always happening. We're always being shaped in one direction or another. We're either being shaped in, into the image of what we were supposed to be or less than who we were supposed to be. And there's so much more that could be said here. So many ways we could follow this rabbit trail about how this looks um, at the personal level or at the corporate level, even at the neurobiological level. Um, the way that this reality works, that we become like what we worship. But I just want to sit for, for just a second with the positive implication of verse 8. Because verse 8 runs in both directions. Um, see, if we trust, if we give our hearts to lifeless and empty things, we become lifeless and empty ourselves. But you see, the reverse is also true. That when we trust in and we give our hearts to the one who is fullness and life himself, that we begin to participate in his fullness. We begin to share in his life. We love him because he first loved us. And why did he, why did he love us first? By his grace. And as we love him, we begin to become like him. <laughs> It's the project that God started by His grace when He gave you that new heart that we talked about in Ezekiel. And He's going to finish that project one day by His grace and for His glory. He is at work in every high and low of your life, in every chapter, changing you back into the image of His Son, restoring you and building you back to look like Him, to reflect His glory and His goodness and truth and beauty back out to the world around you. That's what God is up to. Forming you and shaping you by His grace, by the good news of the gospel and for His glory. Don't you want that? Nothing else can give you that. So see, the psalmist would say, when it comes to worship and who you're going to worship, you need to think about, you need to think about location and you need to think about formation. You need to think about where your God is and what your God is doing to you. <laughs> thirdly, and I promise briefly, uh, the last, last two points will be briefer. The, thirdly, the psalmist says we need to think about protection. Not only think about location and formation, we need to think about or in terms of protection. In verses 9 through 11, the psalmist, he shifts from pointing out why idols are, are worthless and dangerous to pointing out how and why the one true and living God is infinitely better. And so three times he urges God's people, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. 
Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Give him your trust because this is who he is. He is your help and your shield. Now, why would he mention that? What does a shield do? You probably haven't used a shield in your line of work last week. But what does a shield do? Well, very simply, it protects you, right? A shield is something that a warrior or a soldier could hide behind, and it was designed to get hit so that you don't get hit, right? A shield takes the blow so that you don't take the blow. A shield gets dented so that you don't have to. And the psalmist is saying that that's what God is to his people, that that's who, that's who God is for you. He is the one who is stronger and wiser and more powerful that you can hide behind and take refuge in, that you can shelter in God who is your shield. Now, here's what he's saying. He's saying you have to hide behind something. And that's the truth, brothers and sisters and friends. Right now, because of, because of who we are and because of what this world is, We are weak and feeble and limited, and this world is dangerous and dark and overwhelming, and you have to hide somewhere. You have to go to somewhere or to someone to find help and to find safety, to find somewhere to hide. It's just natural. God made you to find shelter and safety in him. And the psalmist is saying, oh, Israel, why would you hide anywhere else? Because there's nowhere else that's safe. All of your other God substitutes, all of the other counterfeit gods, all the other good things in your life right now that could be ultimate things, are they really going to be, can you really be safe hiding behind those things when your world falls apart? When you get that phone call, or you get that diagnosis, or you lose that job or that relationship, what is your wealth or your beauty or your success or this dream that you have for yourself in the future, what is it going to do for you? Can you really hide there? The psalmist says, oh, Israel, hide, hide behind God. He is your strength. He he, he is your shield and your help. Where else would you go? So where are you hiding this morning? And is what you're hiding behind, can it really save you? The psalmist says when it comes to worship, you need to think about location. You need to think about formation. You need to think about protection. And lastly, you need to think about benediction, blessing. The psalm ends with a note of blessing, of of benediction, Good benediction means a good word, a blessing. And five times in verses 12 through 15, the psalmist just hammers this home. He will bless us. He will bless us. He will bless those who fear him. This is what God does. This is what he is. It's like he's pounding into our heads. This is how God operates and what he has in store for you. This is what he's got. He's got blessing. He will bless us. It's as if he's saying, if the default posture of our hearts is to worship something, if that's how we're wired, it's almost like he's saying that this is how God is wired. This is how the divine heart of God is wired, that his his default posture towards the people that he has committed himself to is blessing. 
is free and unlimited, boundless favor and love, blessing. He will bless us. Now, why does the psalmist make such a big deal about this? Why does he mention it five times? Why does he even say that our ultimate good at the end of the psalm is to turn that blessing back on God and to bless him? Well, he's wanting you to ask, what can your God do for you? Those counterfeit gods that you might be hoping in, that you might be loving and chasing after right now, that thing that you might be hiding behind right now, can it bless you? Or is it only taking away life from you? Because you see, when we turn a good thing into an ultimate thing, it can only ask from you. It can only take from you. It can't bless you. It can't give you life back in return. And the, and the psalmist here is saying, Oh, Israel, oh, people of God, oh, Cornerstone Presbyterian Church, why would you worship something that only take away life from you when here is the one true and living God who is your shield and help and protector who lives to bless you, who can only give because he is so boundless and unlimited, the one whose default posture towards you is blessing. So when it comes to worship, we need to think about benediction. Is your God blessing you right now? In closing, we see all of these threads, all of these streams, all of these, all of these major ideas that the psalmist is working us through here. We see them all coalesce in Jesus Christ, the one who came to bless his people by giving himself away, the one who came not to receive but to give and to bless people who didn't deserve it, the one who came to climb up on that cross to be a shield for his people, to receive the blow so that his people didn't have to. The one who came to form you after his image by his grace, to shape you more and more after his character and after his image. And he's the one who told, who told his disciples and who still tells you today that I go there. I go to where God is, to that location, to prepare a place for you so that you can be there with me and so that you can love me and that I can love you and that for the next countless amount of years, I can continually shape you into the image of who you're supposed to be. Why would you go anywhere else? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, make this true of us, we pray. Call back, our, call back our wandering hearts and show us one more time, either for the first time or for the 10,000th time, how true and good and beautiful you are so that you would capture our hearts, O oh Lord, and be the one that we worship, whether consciously or unconsciously. Lord, we desperately desire that. We cannot do it on our own. And we pray for your grace. In your name we pray. Amen.